0: She said, what, you can't co-host if you don't have the beard, and I just, I trimmed, I'm on a two-month rotation where I grow up for two months and I trimmed back, and so, but yeah, calling me out. <laughs> I was about to ask how the NJA conference was, and you guys were there, and you got to see a lot of people, and run into a lot of folks, so. but it seemed like, yeah, the stand is, it's duct tape, that's why it's not coming up. Yeah. <laughs> duct tape is stronger than I am, but it's good to see you, Diane, good to see you back today, too, yeah. Yeah. I pulled, and I pulled the blankets up and I was laying trying to go back to sleep and the Lord said, Did Jesus go back to sleep when he saved you and I said, Ouch. <laughs> 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 you know, to get up and get ready to come. Amen. Also, Jim and Suzanne had their granddaughter yesterday. <laughs> Jim. Jim and Suzanne had a grand new dress. Yeah. Beautiful. And they took to see part of the Geiger crew back and hey, we'll back from been. their voyage to Florida, so one good thing about today is everybody mm-hmm. will be in church You're just celebrating yeah. the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Everybody's taking a Sabbath today, right? Um, so yeah, uh, we got a lot of people out traveling still. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, I'm thinking of like Jim and Suzanne, a lot of different people traveling. So yeah, I just remind, like I said, just pray for the per- protection. I'll be traveling here soon as well. So um, youth volunteers, those who uh, have been to my house the past couple times, not not the youth, but the people who help. Um, chaperone and facilitate that. Can we meet right after service, just like right here somewhere in the front row? Um, we're going to strategize a little bit. And then um, January 9th, which is a Sunday, at 8 a.m., we're going to have a work day here if you're able to come and either, you know, serve food or make food um, or just work as well. But uh, any any able-bodied people that are able to come, and we're, we're going to focus on the floors and try to clean and paint some of the floors here and just do other odds and ends things. Um, I heard Jeremy and Julie are in charge of that, so yeah, <laughs> Um, Jan- January, that's what Bobby said. Uh, January the 19th, we're going to have a DMF business meeting. We try to do this uh, at least once a year, um, where we're going to go over kind of a brief overview of our history as a congregation um, and where we're, how we're led and how we're kind of governed as an organization, as a congregation as well. Um, and hopefully be able to point to you the Bible as to how that's a biblical way of leading you. But also to talk about vision as well and talk about uh, finances. In our vision of having land and maybe erecting our own building at some point so we're gonna to talk to you and give you kind of a status update on that so it'll be January the 19th if you consider yourself a regular member of our mishpacha we don't have membership here but if you consider yourself to be a member of our family please come and, and we'd love to share that with you as well uh, what time is that, that? 6 30 there it is Six thirty. thank you for asking Six thirty a.m no Bobby might be here with his coffee maybe you can <laughs> you can share with us I caught uh, I think about 30 of you signed up for this if you want to receive text updates from us this is something that we're going to send out within 24 hours of an event if, or if we have an urgent and pressing need within the congregation like hey we need someone who's able to go take meals to so and so or if there's, a, if there's an update to an event we'll text that out um if you wanna sign up for that, you send a text to that number and um, you text that message at D fellow and it'll respond right away to you and it'll tell you, read the instructions carefully, it'll tell you what to do and, and how to receive from there. We're not gonna blow up your phones or anything like that. Um, like I said, this is only gonna be if there's a, a reminder we need to put out or if there's been a change to an event or if there's an urgent need in the congregation, um, we'll send it out via text. But right now, Email is the primary communication how we send out updates to you guys and Joanne sends those out on a weekly basis. So if you don't get our weekly email newsletter from Joanne, uh see Joanne Sportsman and she can put you in there and add you to that, that group that it goes out. But some of you, you know, if you're anything like um like like my beloved's uh email inbox, um you maybe overlook some of the emails because you've got five thousand unread emails. And <laughs> so yeah. So maybe text is better for you. I don't know, unless you have 5,000 unread texts. Uh, greetings from Jim and Keitha. I was able to talk to them on the phone this past week and um, they were we were able to send them from our congregation a sizable donation. And that was able to um, help them accomplish some really big goals there in Thailand. For those who don't know Jim and Keitha, Langley are missionaries in Thailand that are part of our congregation. But they wanted me to let you guys know how thankful They were for your giving and your prayers and support. But with the gift that we were able to give them, they will be going tomorrow to this village called Amgoi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's on the top of a mountain range, and it takes 24 hours to get there. Can you imagine that? 24 hours of driving, and that's like off-road driving up mountains, and it's going to take a full day of doing that to get there. But they said that as far as they know, only Buddhists have reached this village. And there's a school there with upwards of 100 uh, students in it that have never, as far as they know, heard the gospel. And I guess they were invited to go up there. But maybe the person who invited them didn't know the full extent of who they're, what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> Knowing Jim Laneley, he says, um, okay, he said, can we bring, uh, maybe he said some shoes or some soccer balls. And can we bring... Um, you know some other like you, um, I don't know if it was like uh, toiletry kind of kind of stuff, and they're like, yeah, yeah, bring that, bring that. And he goes, can we bring some reading material? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're like, yeah, please bring that. So Jim is going to uh, bring some reading material up to this village and be able to share with them. So it's really exciting. But our gift to them, he said, has really put them over the edge to be able to do that and to make that long journey but also they needed some repairs done in the vehicle. They put a lot of hard miles on their vehicle. They have like a Mitsubishi something that does a lot of off-roading. And so it needs constant maintenance and different things. But anyways, thank you for that. And greetings from them. As we get into Acts chapter five this week, I I wanna share something that came across my radar. This is from the Temple Institute, they posted this. And it's kind of very interesting. You know, some of you may realize that the Temple Mount is one of the most contested 36 acres in all of the world in terms of who owns it and what is the history of that 36 acres. The Temple Mount is highly contested. Muslims would say, modern Muslims would say, there never was a Jewish temple there, never was a temple at all there. It's always been a Muslim holy site. Um, because if, there, if there's evidence, if there's archaeological evidence, if there's historical evidence of, of there being a Jewish temple there, a temple to the God of Israel, then that poses a problem with their um, understanding of the Quran and their faith, Um, it also implies that the Jews have rightful uh, ownership of the Temple Mount, and it it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's dwelling place, and not the place where Muhammad ascended into heaven. So for Judaism, it's the most holy site in all the world, and for Islam, it is the third holiest site in all the world, the Temple Mount, which we're gonna talk about extensively today. The Temple Institute, which is an organization based out of Jerusalem, found this uh, brief guide to the Al-Haram Al-Sharif, which is uh, the Temple Mount, essentially, what, what Muslims call the Temple Mount, and the, and the structures on top of the Temple Mount. There's a shrine, and there's also a couple mosques there as well. But this was published in 1925. So this is um, published by the Supreme Muslim Council. I know it's probably small, and you have a hard time seeing that. If someone wants to turn off the front lights, they could but this is the Supreme Muslim Council published in 1925, a brief guide to the Al-Haram Al-Sharif in Jerusalem. All right, and here's what they say. I know this is way too small for you guys to read, but I'm gonna squint here and, and read it. It says, this site is one of the oldest in the world. Its scrutiny, oh, I'm sorry, correction. Its sanctity dates from the earliest, perhaps even prehistoric times. Its identity with the site of Solomon's temple is beyond dispute. This too is the spot according to the universal belief on which David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So here's another excerpt from this. You guys can probably read this. In the west wall of the chamber, a door opens into a staircase descending to Solomon's stables. This is a vast subterranean chamber of roughly rectangular shape, of which the chief feature is the imposing size of the piers. Of these, there are 15 rows of varying size and height supporting the vaults on which rests the roof. Little is known for certain of the early history of the chamber itself. It dates probably as far back as the construction of Solomon's temple. According to Josephus, it was in existence and was used as a place of refuge by the Jews at the time of the conquest of Jerusalem in, by Titus in the year 70. It's interesting, right? This is the Supreme Muslim Council putting us out in 1925. So it's kind of like a, a shot in the foot to them, I suppose. But I wanted to share that with you. Today, as we look at Acts chapter 5, we're going to have to talk extensively and learn extensively about this organization and this body of judges called the Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin is a transliteration of a Greek word, which means the council, the great council. In Hebrew, we would understand this and call this the Beit Din, the Beit Din, or the house of judges, okay? And this comes from Deuteronomy 16:18. The inception of the Sanhedrin comes from this verse. Appoint judges and enforce officers in all of your gates. But many of you know this already. This, the Sanhedrin comprised of 70 elders and the Kohen Gadol, making it 71. In the second temple period, the great Sanhedrin met in the temple in Jerusalem in a building called the Hall of Hewn Stones. The great Sanhedrin convened every day except festivals and the Sabbath. Okay. So the fact that, number one, they're meeting during the day, they can't meet at night, and they can't meet during festivals. When did Yeshua, when was he tried by the Sanhedrin? At night. And on what festival? Passover. Passover. So it shows how... Illegal that proceeding was, right, by the Sanhedrin. There's 12 chapters in this rabbinic text called the Mishnah called Tractate Sanhedrin. It details the standard operating procedures of the Sanhedrin. Everything from who's qualified to be a member of the Sanhedrin to how they go about their proceedings and everything. The Sanhedrin disbanded in the 5th century. Did you know that? They actually left Jerusalem and went up to the Galilee and they still continued proceedings and decisions and edicts up until the 5th century. Does anyone know the last edict that they put out? Hmm. Right now. Well, if you got to think, before they disbanded voluntarily, they said, how do we keep our people all calibrated with one another in the observance of the holy days? Because, you know, we, we know that maybe potentially there might be disputes that come along and how to date the holy days and how to date the Moedim, the appointed times. So... One of the president, I think the president of the Sanhedrin at the time, called Hallel II, pre-plotted, mathematically pre-plotted a calendar that said, we'll, we'll make this the, the pre-plotted calendar for all the Jewish world, so that it will help keep them unified and synchronized in the observance of the holy days. And that's called the Hallel II calendar, and it's observed by all of Judaism, even to this day. And it's, it's extremely accurate when you look at it. It's amazing that they were able to pre-plot it the way they did. And that is the calendar we utilize here at Dothan Messianic Fellowship with the observance of holidays and things of that sort, okay? But that's to keep that's to, to keep the the Jewish world unified. Now, if the Sanhedrin were to be reestablished, which there's already rumblings of that is in, in the process now in Jerusalem, and the agricultural uh, process and, and industry revived in Israel, which that's beginning as well, remember we talked about the restoration of all things, then it would go back to eventually the Sanhedrin would look for the witnesses who spot the new moon and they would do all that. They would do it in the, in the, the way the Torah prescribes. Right? right now, not all the pieces are the way they should be in order for that to be the case. So right now, we're still on the Hillel II calendar. Um, don't confuse the Great Sanhedrin with the Lesser Sanhedrin. How many of you knew that there was actually Lesser Sanhedrins? I, I, I love studying for the Book of Acts and, and teaching this to you guys because I learned a lot myself. But we're going to talk a little bit here in a moment about the Lesser Sanhedrin. But this is from the Mishnah. Any laws or what we call Taka notes issued by the Sanhedrin were binding on the entire Jewish nation. Although lower courts consisted of 23 judges, they could try capital cases. Only the Sanhedrin had authority over cases involving the king, capital crimes committed by the high priest, or crimes committed by an entire tribe or a city. So how many of you knew that every walled city in, in Israel, in the land of Judea in Israel, had a court system that met at the gates of that city? and it was consisted of 23 elders from that city, and they could preside over municipal local issues, whether it be money, they could also issue the death penalty um, there on a, on a local um, municipal level um, before the Roman occupation, but that was called the, those are called the Lesser Sanhedrin or the, the, the municipal councils. So here's the powers exclusive only to the high priest. So you have these lower courts and then you have like the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. They could crown a king, um, they could authorize voluntary wars, such as wars for the sake of expanding the country's borders, um, expanding holy sites such as Jerusalem and the courtyard of the Holy Temple, and they could appoint the lesser 23 elders. Now, there was, uh, there's also these lower Sanhedrins that met on the temple complex itself as well. There's actually three different courts on the temple mounts that met at various gates. You had the, the two that were comprised of 23, and then you have the great Sanhedrin that was comprised of the 70 plus one. Um, and, and they had differing levels of, uh, of, of authority, and in terms of what they governed, it differed as well. This is found interesting from, the, from uh, the Mishnah. It was preferable that its members be familiar. This is the great Sanhedrin. Its members be familiar with all the languages spoken by Jews around the world. I understand why. Because they had to hear the testimony of two or three witnesses in their own language. So they, couldn't, they, they determined that you know, if someone were to come in speaking a language that all the court couldn't understand, they couldn't rely upon that a translator translating that. That didn't count as a witness. They had to hear it from the mouth of the person speaking and understand it. And it says um, uh, these two members who spoke the language to examine the witness and the third member who had at least understand the language. So they had to be able to be fluent, and they had to have a third person who could at least understand the language. And that satisfies the, the, the Torah requirement that a matter be established on, the, on the, the word of two or three witnesses. Interesting, right? This is a very well-learned group of, of scholars and men who knew multiple languages here. All right? These are the municipal courts I mentioned earlier. In addition to the two lesser Sanhedrins located at the entrances to the temple courtyard and the temple mount respectively, every sizable city as well as every tribe had its own lesser Sanhedrin. So you picture Dothan, Alabama, for instance, having 23 elders in Dothan that were men of renown, men men who um, had had good standing in the community. Um, You know, these men were were seen to be righteous. They were law-abiding individuals, well-learned individuals. They would reside over the court of Israel. These lesser courts could adjudicate on municipal matters and, and, and issue or carry out capital punishment were it not for the Roman occupation. So at a municipal level, they could carry out um, uh, capital punishment. Isn't that interesting? This is from the um, Mishnah Torah. I, I found this interesting. Rashi says the following about uh, the, the Sanhedrin. He says, in regard to the 70 elders to help Moses... Years before, in Egypt, these men had been Hebrew officials under Egyptian taskmasters. They were beaten by the Egyptians when they refused to beat fellow Jews in order to finish building projects. As a reward, they became the 70 elders that were selected to make up the very first Sanhedrin. Interesting. So there we see the beginning of kind of like the civil disobedience and a reward for that, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I was reading, oddly enough, One person who tried to revive the Sanhedrin in France was Napoleon. He wanted the Sanhedrin to be revived so that um, he could learn more about the Jewish community, but also try to unify the Jewish community and their observances. Um, And he called it the Grand Sanhedrin. Isn't that interesting? Interesting guy. Where did the Sanhedrin meet? They, They met in the Lishkat Hagazit, the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. Now, if you see here, this is an over, this is, I guess, a bird's eye view of the temple here. And this is, uh, north is this direction, south is that direction, east is over there. You see there's a little um, series of buildings here. This is the chamber of wood there. That's where the high priest would have lived leading up to the Yom Kippur service. This is the chamber of hewn stone. Notice on the north there, chamber of hewn stone. One of the chambers in the north of the courtyard was called the chamber of hewn stone in which sat the great Sanhedrin. In the center sat the head of the Sanhedrin in the eastern part of this chamber, where an opening led to the court. The priest on, which, uh, uh, on watch gathered to recite the Shema and pray in the chamber of hewn uh, stone after the Talmud offering had been slaughtered and its blood dashed upon the altar. So this is where all the priests would come together, basically, and they would recite the morning Shema in the chamber of the hewn stone as well. But this is uh, that model that's in the, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And this is a photo someone took of that model. So the Chamber of the Hewn Stone, according to that, would be somewhere in this vicinity right there. Now, it's not on here. You don't really see it um, because really we're reliant. All the photos, like I said, got destroyed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're reliant upon early rabbinic accounts and early rabbinic texts in description and, and Josephus' description of the temple. Um, courtyard itself, and where all this stuff. So everyone's trying their best to figure out where something like the chamber of the hewn stone would have been located, and it seems it seems to indicate that it'd be somewhere here in the north. However, different accounts have it on the southern wall of the temple courtyard over here. So this is what it would have looked like inside the chamber of the hewn stone. So you have the the high priest, the accused would sit there. And then you have these clerks and these secretaries that are maybe taking note and copying. And then you have student seating here um, for people who are students of these elders here or these what we would call rabbis that might be presiding on the Sanhedrin. Um, What does this look like? What does it remind you of? Yeah, a courtroom, right. And so our, that's why we say we have a Judeo-Christian judicial system because we have patterned a lot of how we do um, in the United States of America, how we do court, um, how, we, how, how we have this sort of thing here. We have a jury, we have a judge, uh, we have the accused, we have people who are actually copying down stuff, we have people sitting here. Uh, it's very similar to that. We patterned it after that to a certain extent. It's not exact, obviously, but it's similar. Let me ask you another trivia question here. Who is someone you would think would be sitting here that is in the New Testament, that would be regularly sitting in one of these seats? Paul, Shaul, Shaul. Paul is, yeah. Why do we say that? Why? You know, where did you get that from? Well, because on this court is likely presiding a man by the name of Gamliel, and Gamliel is still regularly quoted and brought up within Jewish rabbinic thought today. He is thought to be one of the fathers of 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 the um, uh, Phariseism, one of the um, really pioneers of Pharisaical thought. But he would have been here, and he is Paul's teacher. But it's you know, very easy to open any sort of rabbinic text like the Mishnah or um, uh, some pages of the Gemara or things of that sort and see the name Gamliel in it you know, here and there, spattered all throughout, because he was a very prominent figure. And so, yeah, I think his student, Paul, was likely sitting in here and watched many of these court cases go on is very familiar. And so he was he was, I believe, being groomed to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Think about that. But he became someone who was joined our movement, the Sept of the Way. Very fascinating figure. And here, as you notice, this has it on the south wall of the temple courtyard. So there's already a discrepancy there. Like I said, there's a lot of disagreement in the scholarly world as to where that actually was. There's differing accounts, like the Talmud has it one way and Josephus has it another. But if, I put this in here, if you want access, um, a quick way to get all the teachings on the Book of Acts so far, you can just open your phone's camera and hover over this QR code, it'll take you to our website where we have all the DMF teaching audio on the Book of Acts. Sometimes people ask me, how do I access all the audio stuff? Number one, it's sent out weekly in the email newsletter, but You can do it this way too. You just open your phone and put your camera over it and then it'll try to open a web browser. Open that web browser and it'll take you to that thing. It'll take you to all the the teachings on apps. All right. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. I always like this verse and reading this verse because it says, now these things, Paul is talking about what happened in the wilderness. These things that happened in the wilderness to them were like examples written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So the one who thinks he is standing firm should be careful not to fall. Paul is saying the things that happened in the wilderness were a warning to us, an example for us to learn from, hopefully, that we would not repeat them and we would have a fear of God through all the things that happened to our people in the wilderness. And as we get into the chapter, Acts chapter 5, we're going to kind of see that play out a little bit. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts 5. I hope you guys have read this throughout the week and studied it throughout the week. And uh, you know, have your kids read it to, to their kids. You know One of the things we do, we incorporate into our homeschool curriculum is that Noah has to get his younger brothers to sit on the couch next to him. And he has to read what I'm teaching on this coming Shabbat. But he's read, I think he's up to like Acts 7 now. He's read to them. Each day he has to read a chapter of the Bible to them. Um, That's part of his schooling. It's part of their schooling. And they're they're not done with their school until that that is accomplished. So try that and see if that works for your kids. Maybe you have a different idea too. But Acts chapter 5, and now let me set the the stage a little bit. Acts chapter 4, we left off. Everything seemed hunky-dory, right? Everything, we had this hyper-generosity going on within our movement where people were selling off possessions selling off property, giving it to those who had need. And it said there was no one among them who had need, right? And it was like this beautiful picture. And um, I said last week, uh, someone's going to take a, a snippet of this teaching out and, and blackmail me with it. But I said, what did I say? Um, they, were, they were like Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-inspired communists. <laughs> And uh, and sure enough, I mean, it took it took no less than three hours. Someone had uh, had texted me a video of me saying that communism is the best form of government. <laughs> no, they they chopped some other things out there too. But I talked about communism and how communism, Marx was kind of onto something. But anyone in their fallen, unregenerated state who tries to put any sort of practice to what Marx espoused usually ends horribly right it ends up with who has the most money and the biggest guns and communism at the point of a gun is not good it is horrible it's caused more death and suffering than all of human history but communism so to speak i hate to even call it that inspired by the holy spirit and out of someone's volition because their hearts have been circumcised is a very beautiful thing is it not when someone sees a person in need and says, I want to take what, something that I earn with my ability and give it to someone in need, it's a very Marxist thing to do, so to speak. But the un-Marxist part is the fact that a state dictator did not tell you to do that. The Holy Spirit told you to do that, right? So I think Marx maybe just counterfeited it and put his own spin on it. Because embedded within Marxism, like I said last week, is the, the requirement, the prerequis- prerequisite that you have to denounce there being a supreme higher power, a creator. The state is the be-all and end-all for you. So let's just all agree not to try communism. (laughs) Unless the Holy Spirit tells you to. And even then, be careful. We end Acts 4 and we get to Acts 5, and what's the very first word in Acts chapter 5? The word but. Yeah. There it is, right there. It's like we had all of what? Like three days where everything was like hunky-dory? And it says in Acts chapter 5, But there was a man named Hananiah, or you might say Ananias, who with his wife Shafira sold some property. Now let's stop there and talk about their names. Hananiah, is it comes from the root chen, which means grace or favor. It is the root of the name chana or yochanan. So he was named, and then we add the ya at the end, he was named Yah's favor or favored by God. Okay, and then his wife, Shafira, have you guys ever heard of a gemstone called sapphire? That's actually a Hebrew word, safir. Sapphira is like a clear blue sky, like gemstone, okay? Sapphira, or uh, what's her name in English? Uh, Sapphira? Sapphira? Sapphira. Her name literally means the gemstone. Like her name is like a gem. But they sold some property, okay? And with his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds for himself. Although he did bring the rest of the money to the emissaries, So then Kepha, Peter, said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart? Let's pause there. Peter is giving credence to the idea of a personhood in in a character called the adversary. And this adversary, according to Peter, can put ideas into our heart. Now, if Peter is believing that, and Peter spent... Three years with the Mashiach, with the Son of God. And I'm sure they had conversations about the adversary, the Satan. I think he's, I think he's pretty well educated on the nature of this, of this person and their ability to, to speak into our heart and to fill our hearts with something. So he says, why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the money you receive for the land? So there we have another window into the theology of Peter and the apostles, that they ascribe personhood to this entity called the Holy Spirit, do they not? It's something you can lie to. Why didn't he just say like God? Why have you lied to God? Why have you lied to Yeshua He says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? So to me, that, that speaks to the, the personhood of this entity we call the Holy Spirit. And he said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And And why have you kept back some of the money you received for the land. How did Peter know this? Through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. He had what we might call a word of knowledge that he saw into Peter's heart and said, the adversary has put something in your heart. You're lying. You're withholding back something. And I know that because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to receive a word of knowledge. So before you sold it, he says, the property was yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to use as you pleased. So what made you to decide to do such a thing and hold back some of the proceeds? You've lied not to human beings, but to God. Wait a second, did he lie to the Holy Spirit or to God? Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Tony. Verse five, on hearing these words, the favored by God man, Hanania fell down dead and everyone who heard it was terrified. The young men got up, wrapped his body in a shroud and carried him out and buried him. So what did, these, what did this Hanania die from? From shame, from lying perhaps? Did he die because he was just so ashamed or did God strike him dead? Let's, let's continue. We'll get some more hints. Verse seven, some three hours later, his wife comes in. His wife's name, remember, is like the gemstone. Unaware of what had happened, Peter challenged her. Tell me, is it true that you sold the land for such and such a price? Yes, she answered. That is what we paid for it. But Peter came back at her. Then why did you people plot to test the spirit of the Lord? Again, ascribing this degree of personhood to the spirit. Listen, the men who buried your husband are at the door. They're probably really tired from digging a grave. <laughs> they will carry you out too. Instantly, she, she collapsed at his feet and died. The young men entered. They found her there dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. I'm like, man, we just did this. As a result, great fear came over the whole messianic community the whole ecclesia, you could say in Greek, and indeed over everyone who heard about it. I have notes here. Hananiah and Sapphira represents a permanent blemish on our record as a movement. Think about that. Before anyone dies of a martyr's death, such as Stephen, right? We all know Stephen's the first martyr. He dies for his faith, right? It's a beautiful, he gave up his life. Before anyone dies a martyr's death in our movement, two people die of blatant hypocrisy and lying to the Holy Spirit. What kind of message is Luke trying to preserve for us here? If anything will bring down the messianic movement, the sect known as the way, I don't think it will be persecution. I don't think it will be, you know, the state coming down and making it illegal. If anything, I think that might make it healthier. It won't be blatant idolatry and people setting up statues and synagogues or whatever and worshiping it. What will it be? It'll be the idolatry of knowledge and false piety. You catch me? We worship knowledge And we worship looking pious when we're not. And Gabe Rutledge, first and foremost, is guilty of that. We it's like knowledge is our currency. But is that Yeshua's? Did he say, like, welcome, you know, my good and faithful servant who learned enough to make it? No. We have to be very careful. And I think Acts 5 is saying that. Watch yourself. Be on guard for pride. Because the adversary will put something in your heart. Like I said last week, the moment you think you're something without Messiah is the moment that you're off the tracks. So where do we leave off? Verse 12. Oh, let me pause here again in verse 11. As the result, great fear came over the whole Messianic community. You see, great fear is the only antidote, the only inoculation to this hypocrisy. If you're fearful, you're going to be a lot more slow to think that you're something, that you have something that you don't, that you're somebody that you're not. Why? Because you have a fear of God, a holy fear of God. I believe we need a lot more of that in this culture, in this day and age. So as Noah was sitting on the couch and reading this, I heard him say, wow, that escalated quickly. Or he said something like, man, that was severe. It's severe, these guys just dropped down dead, right? Why didn't he give him another chance? Give him a chance to repent, give him a chance to confess. That was severe, right? I would say, so yeah, that was severe. But we could also look at this and turn it on its head a little bit. Was it severe or was it merciful that these people would drop down dead because of their hypocrisy? What if this went on unchecked in the movement of the way? It's like right out the chute. You know what? You guys want to be critical? Boom, you're dead. You want to lie? You want to keep back some of the proceeds and look like you're doing the right thing? And look like you're pious? Look like you're super generous? What's going to cost you? And that's going to induce fear. And that fear is going to keep that hypocrisy and that pride checked. Was it severe or was it merciful? Would the gospel have run as rampant in the land of Judea and in Asia Minor and Africa if it were not for that great fear that was induced through the death of Ananias and Sapphira? So we can look at it as severe. Yeah, man, God is like judgmental. He's a mean... (laughs) Well, we could look at that, wow, he wants people to be who they say they are. And anyone who's not is up against a severe judgment. That's the God I love and worship. Verse 12, meanwhile, through the emissaries, many signs and miracles continue to be done with the people. United in mind and purpose, the believers met in Solomon's colonnade. And we know where that is. That is right here. They seem to like Solomon's colony, don't they? They're hanging out there a lot. And no one else dared join them. Now I think Ananias and Sapphira are supposed to remind us. I'm going on a limb here. I wonder if they're supposed to remind us of two people who desecrated the early tabernacle and had a spear run through them. Remember the Torah portion called Pincus? Where Pincus comes up in the temple and he's a Levite, he's a priest, and he sees these people who are defiling the temple and he's filled with this holy zeal and then God makes a covenant with him, a covenant of peace and in that covenant of peace and that word shalom in the Torah scroll we see the broken vow Remember that? talked about this past year. It's like, I think it's supposed to remind us of that. Here we have this beautiful, pure temple, so to speak, of the way. God's presence and his miraculous signs and wonders and his, his glory is being made manifest through these people. Who are doing and living and embodying the very essence of the Torah. Think about it. The Torah was supposed to be all about justice and mercy and compassion to the foreigners, to those in need, right? And to, and to show to show the nation God's love for them. To show the nations and the Gentiles God's love for them. And here we have that temple, the way, so to speak. And then what happens? We have two people who come in and defy them. And Peter, being the pinkest of the story, runs a spear through them. Granted, it's his words, but they die. And we might look at the same, we kind of have the same reaction, man, I was severe, right? But we don't look at Pincus in the story of Cosby and Zimri that way. We're like, why would they ever do that? How do they have the audacity to do that? So I think we left off in verse uh, 13. And no one else dared join them. Doesn't sound very seeker-friendly, does it? You know, sometimes we go, like, crazy trying to figure out how do we get people in our building. Let's, let's, like, put out leaflets all over the city to try to bring people into our building. Well, here, no one else dare join them. I don't, I don't fully understand what's going on there, but it doesn't sound like they're sending out leaflets all over the city of Jerusalem trying to invite people to their services or whatever. They're like... We have the fear of God. We're performing signs and wonders. If you want to be a part of this, if you want to be part of a historical movement and, and the redemption of, of, of God through his Messiah, Yeshua, then join us. But there is, a, there is some, some really, really strict requirements in terms of where your heart needs to be. And, and if you're not who you say you are, hey, we, let me tell you a story about these two people who came in and lied, and they were blatantly hipoc- hypocritical. And, and our, our leaders of our movement, apparently through the Holy Spirit, they can tell what's on our hearts. <laughs> they have the ability to give a word of knowledge about us. So if you want to join us, that's, that's fine. But I got to be completely like honest with you. You see the difference there? And it says they were united in mind. Okay, nevertheless, the people continue to regard them highly and throngs of believers were added to the Lord, both men and women. Verse 15, they went so far as to bring the sick into the streets and lay them on the mattresses and stretchers so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and every one of them was healed. So again, we have the continuation of of the supernatural, right? We have the continuation of the gifts, Nowhere yet do we see any sort of like idea that this, this like this is going to go away or anything. Verse 17. But the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Septuqim, the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. Now let me pause here and say that there's some typical responses to a genuine move of God. How do people respond to a real move of God? What we see going on here, people are experiencing healing, there's demon possession being, being healed, right? There's, there's like a genuine move of God and no one can deny it. How do people respond? I came up with a few different responses. Number one, all of these have one thing in common, and that is conviction. All humans will come under conviction when they see a genuine move of God. What they do with that conviction is either conviction and then fear, conviction and then have jealousy, conviction and then hate, conviction and then try to silence or conviction and then join and repent. So just keep that in your mind. How we respond to a genuine move of God will probably fall into one of those categories. And if we see a move of God, I hope, if you, for number one, test, make sure it's a move of God. Now, I've lived in a city before where there was like a revival, so to speak, that ended horribly. And it defamed my God. It profaned his name. I'm going to look at that and say, was that a move of God? If it's a move of God, I want to be there. I want to be active in that. I want to submit to that. But if not, I want nothing to do with it, right? So let's go, let's move on. They were filled with jealousy. So they were convicted and then they got jealous. Why? Because they wanted the attention. They wanted notoriety. They wanted the popularity in the city. They arrested the emissaries and put them in public jail. This is their second arrest now. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and led them out and said, go stand in the temple court keep telling the people about this new life. After hearing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and began to teach. So picture this. All the priests, all the Sanhedrin, they're gathered here in the chamber of the human stones are reciting the Shema and suddenly they hear a ruckus outside. They hear this crowd gathering and there the emissaries who they thought were locked up in prison are speaking again in the name of Yeshua. So it says, where I leave off. I keep losing my spot here. Now the Kohen Gadol and his associates came and called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That is, of Israel's whole assembly of elders. And sent to the jail to have them brought. This is interesting here because these guys are sending to a jail for people who are not there. It says, but the officers who went did not find the prison prisoners. So they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. It's a fascinating contrast that's going on here. He says, when the captain of the temple police and the head priest heard these things, they were puzzled and wondered what would happen next. The contrast is this, the Sanhedrin gathered to sentence people that they didn't have in prison. And then it says the guards were carefully guarding prisoners that weren't there. And then they begin to look for people who are in plain sight. You see the contrast Luke is trying to develop here? Verse 29, Peter, oh, I'm sorry, i went too far, didn't I? Then someone came and reported them. Listen, the men you ordered to be put in prison are standing in the temple court teaching the people. The captain and his officers went and brought them, but not with force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They conducted them, or they, they yeah, conducted and brought them to the Sanhedrin, where the Kohen Gadol demanded of them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Notice, what did they not say there? The name Yeshua. Yeah, when you meet someone who is an opponent to the gospel, they have a hard time saying the name Yeshua. Why? Because Yeshua means salvation. People that I have encountered who denounce their faith in Yeshua and go into, let's say, Orthodox Judaism. People who I regularly heard call Yeshua Yeshua. They do this really interesting thing. They stop calling him Yeshua and they call him Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Take note of that. If you ever find somebody, I hope hope no one leaves a faith, obviously. I hope no one close to you leaves a faith. But they have to stop calling him salvation. Because there is power in that name. They said, look here. You have filled fill Yerushalayim with your teaching. Who should have been teaching here? They should have been teaching. And here, these people of the land, these former fishermen, are filling the city with their teaching. They're like the rightful teachers all of a sudden. They're doing a better job, right? Moreover, you are determined to make us responsible for this man's. Notice, what did they not say again? Yeshua's death. Verse 29, Peter and the other emissaries answered. Here they go again. They're going to say this again. We must obey God and not men. This is their second claim of righteous and civil disobedience that they're going to make here. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. They didn't really mince their words here, did they? God has exalted this man at the right hand. As he's talking about Daniel 7 and the, the exaltation of the Son of Man. As ruler and savior, in order, to, in order to enable Israel to do repentance and have her sins forgiven, we are witnesses to these things. Notice they didn't say that he died And he was raised again in order to start plan B and to to cut off Israel and go with a different entity that we might call the church. Notice he's not saying that. He's saying in order for Israel to be forgiven of her sins. So is, he says, uh, we are witnesses to these things. So is the Ruach HaKodesh. Wait, the Holy Spirit is a witness to these things? Do you hear him ascribing more personhood to the Holy Spirit here? whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, let's take a little detour real fast. Go to Romans 13. Romans 13. And some of you already know the theme of Romans 13, but it's a very important theme. Because I think sometimes people take this verse and they like to make a a graphic they share on social media. We must obey God rather than man, right? And they they use that to justify all kinds of, of craziness. But... Let's look at Romans 13, and let's season this idea with a little bit of Romans 13. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities. Wait a second, what? Paul is saying we must obey the governing authorities? When when back there he says, Peter says that we must obey God, not man? For there is no authority that is not from God. And the existing, verse 1, the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So is Peter and the apostles, are they bringing judgment on themselves? What do we do with this? How do we, how do we, let's go to another verse real quick and I'll I'll confuse you even more. 1 Peter 2.13, 1 Peter 2.13. you think is emperor, as Peter is writing this? Who's the emperor of Rome? Nero. First Peter 2, 13. He says, for the sake of the Lord, submit yourselves to every human authority, whether to the emperor as being supreme or to governors as being sent by him to punish wrongdoers and to praise who do what is good. For it is God's will that you are are doing good should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Submit as people who are free, but not letting your freedom serve as an excuse for evil. Rather, submit as God's slaves. So, how do we reconcile these? Here's the answer. This is the linchpin to it all. When a governing authority tells you to do something that is against the ultimate authority, that is his word, disobey it. Do it in a way that is honoring to those telling you to do it, though. Do it in a way that is like almost apologetic. I'm sorry, but I must obey God rather than man. But in all other areas, be obedient to the governing authorities. But when they get you to cross that line of like, this is going to defile you, this is going like to break God's word, don't cross that line. And you have God's backing in that. But we have this interesting relationship with governing authorities here in this, in this age, being over us, but also recognizing, recognizing there a king of kings, right? And it's this interesting dynamic that we've had throughout our history as, as a movement. And we'll continue to have that interesting and that awkward tension between authorities here on earth and the authority in heaven. So I'm at verse 33. On hearing this, the members of the Sanhedrin were infuriated and wanted to put the emissaries to death. Now, could they do this? They could, but the Roman occupation prevented them from doing that. But one of the members of the Sanhedrin rose to his feet. He was a Pharisee, a paroush His name was Gamaliel. Remember we talked about Gamliel, and who's, who's his student? Paul. Gamliel stands up. He says he's a teacher of the Torah, highly respected by all the people. He ordered the men to be put outside for a little while, and then he addressed the court. He says, men of Israel... Take care what you do to these people. See, some time ago, there was a rebellion under a man named Todah, who claimed to be somebody special. And a number of men, maybe 400, rallied behind him. But upon his being put to death, the whole following was broken up. Broken up and came to nothing. He has, so this 400, that's more than the 120 we see in Acts 2, right? He has more men, yet he's killed, and his movement is broken up. After this Gamaliel goes on. Yehuda Hagaliel, sorry, Haglili. Led another uprising back at the time of the enrollment of the Roman tax, and he got some people to defect with him. But then he was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. So what do we see in common here between these two these two movements that Gamaliel is invoking? There's one leader they know by name, there's a few hundred followers, and but then what happens? Followers gets killed, or I'm sorry, the leader gets killed, the followers scatter, right? Do we see the same thing taking shape with the way? The leader gets killed, do the followers scatter? No, if anything, we see the opposite. We see them coming closer together. But eventually, persecution becomes so fierce in Jerusalem that they do have to scatter, and they they take the message of the gospel with them. So, and I'm in verse 38. So in the present case, Gamaliel says, my advice to you is not to interfere with these people, but to leave them alone. I like that because I always say, you know, if someone is teaching blatant, like, you know, error on the internet or on YouTube or whatever, or in a church or something, and they're just wrong, you know, and they're just getting it wrong. One of the things you can do is absolutely nothing. <laughs> and you like, well, if what they're doing is wrong, if it's not a move of God or a teaching of God, it'll, it'll end. I don't really have to do anything. Right? I can call them out, but I like that. Leave them alone. For if this idea or this movement or this YouTube channel has a human origin, it will collapse. Very freeing feeling, right? But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You might even find yourself fighting God. So let me ask this question: What is the characteristic, a key characteristic of a true move of God? Hmm, is it time? Endurance? Could we say it's time? Because I mean, if you look, there's like Buddhism, Islam. There's some really old religions. Out there, Hinduism, Taoism. There's some really old religions that if we say time is the true mark of a move of God, that if they last for a long time, oh, that must be a move of God. No. What is the true mark of a move of God? The true mark of a move of God is if the leader, let's call them that, loses his or her life, the movement is not bound up in their identity. It's a move of God. It's going to go on. And in fact, it's going to spread even more. So time doesn't necessarily equal it. Now, a true move of God is not going to fizzle out. So if you see a, a movement fizzle out, you can say that's not a move of God. But just because they've been around for a long time doesn't make it a move of God. You see what I'm saying? And one of the things that's really fascinating, uh, Xavier and I were talking about the fire the other night, one of the things that's really fascinating about this movement, the way that we're in, and the resurgence of it that seems to have happened a lot in the 90s and early 2000s. There seems to be a lot of people who came into a resurgence and a restoration of the apostolic faith that we would call the Messianic movement or whatever you want, a Torah movement, whatever you want to call it. But it seems to, it seems to be a resurgence of that. But what's fascinating about it is you can't pinpoint it to one person. You can't say, oh, so-and-so started that in the 1970s or something. You can say there's a collection of people that did attribute to its spread and its growth. The Messianic movement grew due to the influence of these people or these books or whatever. But really, it, I believe it was a move of God, a, a last day's move of God to, to refine and purify the people for himself. But I think we left off on verse uh, 40. Thank you, thank you. So they heeded Gamaliel's advice. After summoning the emissaries and flogging them, they got to get something right. They got to flog these guys at least. They commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and let them go. The emissaries left the Sanhedrin, afraid, and never spoke in the name of Yeshua ever again. No, it says that they left in a state of 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 keris in the Greek, a state of like. Charis is the Greek word for, like, grace. Have you ever heard the name uh, charity? It's literally, their their name means grace or gracious one. They left, in other words, we could translate this, they considered it like experiencing God's grace that they suffered persecution. Isn't that interesting? And it says, having been considered worthy of suffering, this grace on account of him. And not for a single day, either in the temple court or in private homes, did they stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Yeshua is the Messiah? That's so beautiful, isn't it? So here we have some like fierce persecution. They get flogged. How many of you ever been flogged for the sake of Messiah before? <laughs> Can you imagine getting flogged? I mean, that's a painful experience, humiliating experience. And then you count that, you consider that like God showing grace to you. Wow, I just experienced God's grace today. Let me go do that again. I mean, they they are they're not even slowed down the least bit. If anything, they are even more enlivened in their boldness and their determination to do this. So I have some takeaways for today from Acts chapter five. And it's this. I mean, if you guys see any other themes or anything during the Q&A portion, definitely let me know. But I drew this out of Acts five, that false piety, false generosity is potentially more dangerous than open and real sinfulness. Just think about that. And then I also drew away that we should look at persecution as an act of divine providence. It is one major way in which God's mission gets accomplished. Persecution equals refinement. Comfortability equals stagnation. One of the hardest things up against people like me here in Dothan, Alabama is the fact that everyone's a Christian. (laughs) One of the nicest things, we were talking last night, one of the nicest things is that everyone in Alabama is a Christian. Something that really drives me crazy in Alabama is that everyone's a Christian. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? And so you have like this, okay, I can kind of stagnate a little bit because we've created sort of this bubble of like biblical culture in our city or our neighborhood or whatever, our family. I don't have a lot of atheists in my family. Everyone's kind of just culturally, we're just Christians and we're okay. And I can't garner a lot of zeal from people who are like that. I can get them zealous about whatever game is coming on, or what, you know, I can get them zealous about you know, fishing or hunting, and those are wonderful things. But I have a hard time in Alabama, in the Alabamian culture, to get people zealous about the faith why because I think we've created an environment where it's such a blessing to have so many people of like faith that we can kind of just take it easy and stagnate a little bit and there's no sense of urgency in that and that drives me crazy because <laughs> I like to see people with i I'd rather you know see like someone zealous for like their atheism than not see someone zealous for the things of God because if I could see someone who's zealous for their atheism I can at least like get Jim Lanley on the phone and be like, here, <laughs> <laughs> you've, got a, you, you've got a zeal. And I believe that God can arrest that and use it for his kingdom. Thirdly, I think movements, denominations, or sects that are based on a single charismatic leader or a personality are dangerous and unbiblical. Now, I've heard people talk for years now um, You know, people will say uh, things like, oh, is that so-and-so's congregation? (laughs) I'm guilty of that. Don't get me wrong. Is that so-and-so's, or is that, we went up, like last night we were talking about, we went up and visited this teacher. We went to so-and-so's congregation, so-and-so's fellowship. And one of my biggest fears may sound odd to you. One of my biggest fears and trepidations is somehow... Like people, because I stand here and run my mouth the most. Somehow, people say, "Oh, is that Gabe Rutledge's congregation?" Oh, don't do that. All right, please be a group and a body that is that is Dothan Messianic Fellowship. You are not known by one person. You're not. You don't identify as so and so's congregation. You are the flock of Yeshua in Dothan, Alabama. Right. Because I believe if you root your identity on one person as broken and fallen and sinful as Gabe Rutledge, that's bad news, Bears. You get what I'm saying? Don't do that. I think this is why we are so uniquely poised as a congregation to where you know we we are a co-op of sorts where I lead and do and teach voluntarily and there's no one on staff here. It's like, this is a beautiful opportunity we have here in Dover, Alabama. And that is why I'm so excited that I can have the ability to say, I want people who feel a call to lead, to teach, to serve, to to have some sort of leadership role, to step forward in our congregation and say, let me know, I will train you. And you might be better at doing what I do. And that would be wonderful. And I don't have a 401k or a car payment or anything that's attached to me standing here and doing this. So I can say, God, if you call me elsewhere or if you call someone up here who is anointed and gifted more so than me and you need me elsewhere, let's do that. I want to be a move of God, not a movement of man. And I think this is so beautiful and so unique that we have that opportunity. And there was a, a young man who went to his pastor Recently, and asked his pastor, can you mentor me to do what you do? And the pastor who has a large congregation said, no, I, I, I can't, I can't. I don't really have time for that. Well, you gotta think too, I don't know if this pastor's harder, but it would make sense if you're a business leader to not teach too many people your business and your trade. Like for instance, my mother-in-law, she trims and, and makes topiaries. And she does a beautiful job. She takes these plants, these Eugenia plants, and she shapes them into all different kinds of like spirals and pom-poms and beautiful little creations that she, she – and it's a very, very um, unique skill. And she said to me one time, she's like, yeah, you know, I, I would love to teach all of our workers how to do what I do. But you have to be careful because they might go start their own nursery and do what I do. You see what I'm saying? And compete with what we do here. But that's understandable And that's completely okay She's a business She does that for a living She has to protect the proprietary information And knowledge and art that she has But is that how the gospel is to be viewed? Are we supposed to protect And have like this proprietary relationship With like who can lead who can, who can shepherd Who can teach, who can disciple No, if you have a calling By all means Let me train you, let me disciple you Let me equip you Let me give you some things that I learned the hard way. And you go out and do that. Because this is not a proprietary thing. This is not me guarding something. And I don't feel threatened by that. Because I look at it as a move of God, not a move of man. And that's why I'm like super excited that in February, I'll be teaching a class that's going to span for 12 weeks. If anyone here or watching online or listening to the podcast has an interest or I should say a calling to be a some sort of leader in a capacity of any capacity in the body of Messiah, please come to this. It's completely free and it'll be one weeknight. I haven't picked a weeknight yet, but I'm going to lead people how how, I'm going to teach you how to lead and how to instruct within the body of Messiah. I think this would be ideal for couples to come together, if possible. And let me reassure you that you might be in the room and you might be thinking less of yourself because, you know, I don't have that calling. That's okay. We are a body, and a body has many parts. And if you're not called to teach or lead or anything like that, that is completely okay. You're not like some subhuman species or anything like that. You're not. That's okay. You might just be called, you know, to, to one-on-one counsel with people or... Or bring people meals or something like that. And that is absolutely an essential part of our body. But I want to teach people and I want to disseminate and equip people to do kind of like what I do. Now, if you think, like, if this was a business for us, if this was like, uh, you know, a one man show, it's big. I'd shoot myself in the foot just then, right? <laughs> but no, this is all about Yeshua's business, it's all about his mission and the gospel going forth. And I believe wholeheartedly that local in-person fellowships, whether they be based in a living room or based in a building like this, is where it's at. The internet is not gonna do it for you. The internet's not gonna cut it. And I've said this to people on the live stream that are watching, if you're watching a live stream to exclusion of going to a real in-person congregation or fellowship, you're wrong. Go to that in-person fellowship or congregation. It's difficult, it can be messy at times, it can hurt your feelings at times, you might have to resolve conflict with other human beings, and that's annoying. But that's part of showing the love of our Messiah to people around us. They will know we are his disciples. How? Follow. Oh, not how much we know? Follow. Not whether we say his name correctly, By our love for one another. An in-person community and fellowship is where it's at. So I'm going to keep badgering and badgering you guys about that if you feel a calling to that. And calling is different desire, than desire. Just so you know. But what questions and comments do you guys have about Acts chapter five? Mm-hmm. Anything you'd like to add? You, you mentioned about seventy plus one. Who's the other one of the head? The Cohen Gadol. Oh, God. yeah, the high priest. Yep. Good question. Mm-hmm. And seventy comes from obviously the know uh, the um, the idea that you know, um, Jethro told Moses. You need to you need to kind of like help share the load of governing these people, and then God said to Moses, pick seventy leaders of Israel, and seventy being representative, obviously of the number of the nations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Twenty-three. Why is there um twenty-three elders at the city gates? That's a long story. Um, uh, it has to do with um, the Torah says that. Each community is to, ha- is to set up elders at the gates. And what is a community? How do, how do we define like a kahal? And uh, Judaism has enumerated 10 people comprise a kahal, a community. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, we can't have just 10. Let's have another group of 10, but that makes an even number. So let's break the tie with 21 but let's make sure we go above and beyond and add two more because uh, a, s- a matter established on the witness of two or three so let's make it 23. I, I think that's how they came about the 23 number. So, yeah. Yeah, Julian. Um, you alluded to um, the, the
1: situation with, I don't know, the Ananias and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. I to go to Christian <laughs> Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> Being um, similar to like um, that tabernacle kind of experience, do you think that um, they died because the presence was so strong there, kind of like mm. like the layers of the tabernacle, and that's why maybe we don't die now when we're not. Like, in the <laughs> I know. I hear a lot of people like killing over every time they're not uh, honest. The <laughs> well, yeah, and I have I have in my I have in my notes here. What if I, I didn't read it? What if God reacted to gay religious hypocrisy the same way He reacted to Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy? That would be terrifying. Um, I would I would have been dead long ago. <laughs> But yeah, I wonder um, if, it, if it does have something to do with the proximity to the inception of the movement and how how much they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a good question, but I, I don't know if I can answer that um, confidently. If that makes sense, but it could be, it could be, and yeah, because of what, why are we not falling down dead now? It could be, yeah, because it's the my first my first reaction. She's asking for those who couldn't hear. Why did they? Why did they? fall down dead because of their hypocrisy then and why don't we fall down dead because of our hypocrisy now is it because of it was so early in the history of our movement uh is it because they were so close to the tabernacle or the temple so to speak the the way being like a temple a very pure temple um, maybe god's trying to make a point and set a precedent i don't know but yeah sorry i can't fully answer that with confidence but it's an interesting thought i saw jackie and shannon That's another good point. Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, that is a good one. That when they went in and they kept some of the spoils of war after they crossed the Jordan, they make, yeah, and they, they they should have given they should have given all the gods, so to speak, as like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder too I don't know the answer to this but like if I sold my house and I brought it to the apostles and I was like hey I sold my house for let's say $100,000 for easy math but I need to pay off some student loans and I kept $25,000 to pay that off here's the rest $75,000 I wonder if they would have been okay using <laughs> I think, and I think they sold it for 100000 kept 25 and they're like here we sold our house for $75,000. Wow, yeah, I think mean, that's Yeah. And I think their motives were, hey honey, let's let's sell this piece of property that we're not using anyways and let's in a showing way, very like showmanship way, give it to the apostles, but let's actually keep a little bit for ourselves. And so their motives were like to be seen by men to look righteous. And uh, I think I think that's a no-go for sure. Yeah, uh oh, Shannon, I'm sorry. Well, Shannon and Patrick. That's exactly what I was going to say, what you just said. Oh, okay, cool. Just that they were being showman showmen. Well, no, the, the first thing you said about how they, if they would have just gone about it differently. Yeah, yeah. They were like, hey, I really need to keep this portion of the prophets yeah. so that we can. If they were completely honest, yeah. yeah they front, so they wouldn't saying. have keeled over right. perhaps, yeah. Yeah good point uh, Patrick yeah, so, so in this-